In the lead-up to the same-sex marriage postal survey, uh, comedian Magda Savansky claimed Christians play fast and loose with the Bible, especially with the Old Testament law. She said, we just pick and choose the bits we like and ignore the rest. She said, Christians are happy to point the finger at LGB people, happy to call them all sorts of things, whilst at the same time work on the Sabbath. I reckon she's got a point. Uh, She's not unique in entertainers pointing this out. There's a scene in the West Wing TV show that's pretty much the same. It's about the same topic and the president, the guy acting the president in the show, accuses Christians of trying to force some laws on some people whilst ignoring other Old Testament laws such as not wearing mixed fibre clothing. And it's not just people having a go at Christians you might be wondering the same thing. What are Christians meant to do with the Old Testament and in particular the law given to Moses? Does following Jesus mean we shouldn't eat bacon or we must put railings around the roofs of our houses? Do any of you have railings? I don't think you do. But the law of God says you must. These are the kind of things we find there. Today we're just going to look at a a few sentences of Jesus' teaching, Jesus' teaching about the law and the prophets And what Jesus says raises some really big questions. This is a really difficult part of the Bible to understand. So we're not going to solve everything today. This is a good part of the Bible to keep having good conversations over morning tea and in our growth groups. But just what we're looking at today, my prayer is we'll become better Bible readers and grow in love for Jesus as we listen to him. So as as Jesus starts teaching about the Old Testament, he comes out the gate And it sounds like he's being defensive. So have a look at verse 17, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, why would people think Jesus has come to abolish the law and the prophets? There are things Jesus says and does later in Matthew's gospel that raise this question. But we haven't got there yet. We've been reading Matthew's gospel since Christmas time. Nothing Jesus has said has made us raise that question. So why does he say that here? It's almost the first thing out of his mouth as Jesus begins to preach. From what we've read so far in Matthew, why does Jesus need to defend himself against this accusation? I think what it is, have a look back over last week's passage. Look back over, just glance at it now. Look at Matthew 5, 1 to 12, which talks about the blessed life. What's not mentioned? What's... What's not said? Now, I'm not asking you to actually give me feedback. This is one of those bad teaching moments where you ask a question where I have a very specific answer I want you to say. I don't imagine you're going to get it straight away. What we don't notice, because many of us are so familiar with what Jesus teaches, but what's missing is Jesus says nothing about the law. And that's shocking. Have a listen to what Psalm 1 says about the blessed person. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Do you hear the difference? In Matthew 5, 1 to 12, Jesus doesn't mention the law once. But in Jesus' day, the moment you mention the blessed person, the blessed life, You know Psalm 1, the first thing that's going to jump into your mind is 
the person who loves God's law, who meditates on it day and night. And I think this is what raises the question, the accusation. Is Jesus teaching something new? Is he introducing a new philosophy? Is Psalm 1 really not part of Jesus' religion and Jesus, the, the, the movement Jesus is starting? Is the blessed life Jesus is talking about, has it got nothing to do with the God of our ancestors? And Jesus' answer to those questions, that accusation is, no, he hasn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. He isn't starting some new religion because he's the fulfilment of everything the Hebrew Scriptures teach. So look again at verse 17. I do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. We've got to define a few words. First up, fulfill. This is a key word. How you understand fulfillment will shape what you think Jesus is teaching. Good thing is we don't have to guess what it means. Already in Matthew's Gospel, six times we've read that something happened that fulfills the Old Testament. And we've already talked about it a bit because we often think fulfillment, that's about a promise being kept or a prediction coming into reality. And a couple of times in Matthew, that's what fulfillment means. For example, Isaiah said the virgin would conceive and have a son and the son would be called Emmanuel and Mary's child fulfills that prophecy. But other times, the fulfillment is nothing to do with a prediction. For example, after Jesus is whisked off to Egypt, lives as a refugee and then returns to Galilee, Matthew says, and so was fulfilled. What the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. That's a quote from the prophet Hosea. But if you read Hosea, it's not a prediction about anything. Hosea is just retelling the story of God's people Israel. And so this kind of fulfillment, and this is the majority of the fulfillment so far in Matthew, this fulfillment's not a prediction. Instead, Jesus is living out, retelling Israel's story. Jesus is filling up Israel's story with its true and full meaning. That's how Matthew uses fulfill. And so unless there's a good reason to think otherwise, that's what Jesus means here. He is filling up the law and prophets with their full meaning, bringing them to completion and fullness. But that brings us to the next phrase we need to define, what are the law and prophets? We might think law, prophets, rules, predictions. Uh, In the early books of the Bible, Exodus through to Deuteronomy, there are lots of laws, rules, God's people were to live by. And then in the later bits of the Old Testament, there are prophets. And in some places they speak about the future and they speak of the coming Messiah. But I don't think law and prophets means the bits of the Old Testament that tells us what to do and the bits of the Old Testament that are predictions. No, for ancient Jews, and in fact for Jews today, that's the name they give the Scriptures. What we call the Old Testament, they call the law, the prophets and the writings, or sometimes just the law and the prophets. That's what they call the Old Testament. Uh, because 
they group the books of the Old Testament into different groups. So you've got the law, that's the first five books, uh, sometimes called the books of Moses, and then the prophets and writings, that's all the other books that we have in what we call the Old Testament. So when Jesus says he comes to fulfil the law and prophets, he doesn't mean the bits that are the rules and the bits that are the predictions. He means the whole thing, the whole Hebrew Bible, the whole Old Testament. In Luke's Gospel... After Jesus' resurrection, uh, he walks to Emmaus with a couple of his followers. And they didn't recognise him because they didn't think he'd be raised from the dead. And this is what Jesus did. It'll be up on the screen. Beginning with Moses, in other words, the law, and all the prophets, he explained to them what uh, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Uh, depending on who you talk to, there are between 100 and 400 predictions of Christ in the Old Testament. And that's true. And those texts are proof of God's faithfulness and truthfulness. But Jesus is saying, that's too small. 400, that's too small. It's the whole thing. The whole thing is about Jesus. It's all fulfilled in him. And that's why we did God's big picture at the end of last year in our growth groups, to see how the whole Bible is about the kingdom of heaven. God's people living in God's place, under God's rule and enjoying his blessing. We saw how the whole Bible is all about Jesus. One of the things this means is, whenever we read the Old Testament, the number one question, the big question to ask yourself when you're reading the Old Testament is, How does this speak of Christ? It might be a prediction. The virgin will conceive and give birth to Emmanuel. It might be there's a pattern that Jesus fulfills. It might be it reveals our sin and how desperately we need a saviour. There's all sorts of other ways the Old Testament points to and teaches us about Jesus. And this is why the law and prophets will never pass away. That's what verse 18 says. Not even the smallest part of a letter will disappear. It'll last as long as there is creation. I think heaven and earth passing away pretty much means forever, doesn't it? And the reason the law won't disappear is because it's always going to be fulfilled in Christ. It'll always proclaim Christ, point to Christ, teach us about Jesus. And since Jesus won't disappear, neither will the law. Though the second part of verse 18 is interesting. Have a look. It says the law won't disappear until everything is accomplished. Everything being accomplished. That's starting to suggest that although the law and prophets will always be God's word, they will always tell us the truth about humanity and about God, they'll always proclaim Christ, who is their fulfilment, but they will also be accomplished, which is a hint that the coming of Jesus changes the way God's people relate to the law. Because what Jesus says about the law and the prophets, it raises questions for us. The question is, does the law of Moses make an ethical call on us as followers of Jesus? As Christians, does the Old Testament law teach us how we are to live? Or is its only job to show us Christ who is its fulfilment? Now the next couple of sentences are tricky. Verses 19 to 20 are tricky, not because of what they say. What they say is pretty easy to understand. 
But it's possible to understand what Jesus says in a way that contradicts other things we read elsewhere in the New Testament. But there's no contradiction because Jesus' point is, although the law and prophets are fulfilled in him, he is the goal, the message of everything in the scriptures. That's the main thing the Old Testament does. But at the same time, the commands and instructions in the Old Testament do speak about how to live for Jesus when approached the right way. Verse 19, Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pull a few things together. Verse 18 talks about things being accomplished. We also notice that in the, the blessed life, there's nothing about delighting in the law. We know, we expect something is changing with the coming of Jesus. The fulfillment of the law and the prophets is now here. But at the same time, Jesus says, the law isn't relaxed or lessened in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, what's required in the kingdom of heaven is greater righteousness than the Pharisees and teachers. Now for us, if you're familiar with the the Bible, familiar with what Jesus says, you go, ah, fantastic, Jesus, you have just set the bar really, really low. This is the kind of high jump that even I can do. Because what we learn about the Pharisees in the gospel, they're hypocrites. Jesus says they like to look religious. They like to look like they delight in God's word and obey it meticulously. But Jesus shows their obedience is barely even skin deep. They pick and choose what laws to follow. They use the law to control others and to benefit themselves. Reminds you of an accusation from earlier? So we know all these things because of what Jesus says later in Matthew's gospel. But for the average Galilean listening to Jesus on the hillside, for them, the Pharisees are the mega godly ones. If we were medieval Catholics, they are the monks and the nuns. Maybe for some of us, it's what we think of as those people who become missionaries and particularly missionaries who go to a place where it's dangerous to be a Christian. You mean we've got to be more hardcore about following Jesus than them? Jesus says, think of the the most holy, most godly person you can imagine. Your righteousness has got to get better than that. I reckon lots on that hill were thinking, well, oh well, that's it then. I've I've got no chance. Though if they then kept their ears open and they kept listening to Jesus, they'd see the flaws in the Pharisees and, and that what Jesus is calling his followers to is deep, heartfelt righteousness. Not perfection, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, but living for God because we love God. And that's what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven, the hope of Jeremiah 31 is now here. This is what God promised. Have a listen, put it up on the screen. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out of Egypt. That's the He's talking about the law of Moses here, isn't he? The law given through Moses. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. God's promise is no longer laws written in a book, but law written on their hearts. No longer being urged to know the Lord, but through Christ and by the Spirit, we now know God personally. This is one of the way, one of the ways the law and prophets are fulfilled in Jesus. This is the greater righteousness, the law written on our hearts. With Jesus, his people know God from the heart and we can live for him. With Jesus, sin and wickedness is forgiven and we have a new covenant relationship with God. So how does Jesus' statement here on the mountainside, how does it help us to read the whole Bible and especially deal with the accusations that Christians are not very different from the Pharisees of old, that we just pick and choose. We like the laws that make other people feel bad but ignore the laws that hit us. Well, first up, the purpose of the law and prophets. So let's zoom in on the law in particular, the first five books of the Bible, and particularly then the rules God gave Israel. First up, the law reveals God and preaches Christ, always has, always will. As we read the read Exodus or Deuteronomy, we get to see God's heart. We see he cares about holiness and righteousness. He calls his people uh, out to, to love God and love people. We see God cares about purity. That's why Israel's got loads of laws and rules about cleanliness, food you can eat, the things you've got to do with mould, because God cares not about mould but about purity. God cares about truth and justice. That's why there are rules to ensure that the innocent was acquitted and, and the guilty punished. We see God cares about how people relate, how we care for and respect those who bear God's image, and particularly he cares about the needy and vulnerable. The law shows us God wants to dwell with his people. That's what the sacrifices and feasts in Leviticus are about. We preached through Leviticus and did a Bible study on it quite a few years ago, but all of those sermons are still up on the website. The Bible study notes are still on the website too. You can get back into them. I think I got excited about Leviticus doing that. And so through all of that, The law preaches Christ because he lives out these things perfectly. He is holy, righteous, just, pure. We see in Christ the same God, the same heart of God that we see in the law. That's just the things that we often think about with the rules because the big part of the law actually is things like sacrifices and and, uh, feasts. And Jesus is the ultimate and final sacrifice. He is our, our great high priest the promised righteous king, and through Jesus we draw near to God and God dwells with us through his spirit. For Christians, the law tells us all of this about our God. But what about following the rules and laws? Are they a rule of life for us? Uh, Historically, uh, one way that Christians have dealt with this is uh, dividing the law into three categories, ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law. Uh, ceremonial is everything about sacrifices and cleanliness. It's the laws about the tabernacle and priesthood. 
Uh, Civil are the laws about running Israel as a nation and everything else is moral. And the idea of this approach is in the kingdom of heaven, Christians don't follow the civil laws because there's no such thing as a Christian nation. Followers of Jesus are citizens of every nation on earth, so there's no place for those laws anymore. Similarly with the the ceremonial laws, we don't need to offer sacrifices or go through special washings to become clean because Jesus' death on the cross is all we need for holiness and righteousness. If we build a sacred building or offer a sacrifice on a special table, we deny Christ. But, the way this thinking goes, the moral laws still hold force for how we live. And I reckon this approach is okay as a rule of thumb. It's okay as far as it goes. But it has got some problems. Now, the biggest one is we don't see these divisions in the Bible. The law isn't talked about in this way. Also, it's not easy to decide which group any particular command fits in. For example, the laws against charging interest. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God. Uh, There are other laws that say the same thing. Uh, Laws like this, are they part of the civil law because it's about running a national economy? Or is this a moral law because it's about greed? It's a particular application of thou shalt not steal. Can you see the problem? Which category does it fit in? What do we do with, and there's loads of laws like this. So I think dividing the law into three parts, it's okay as far as it goes, but it's not the best way for Christians to approach the law. And what Jesus does in his teaching, and over the next couple of weeks we're going to see how Jesus takes the Old Testament law and applies it to his people. What Jesus and the, the apostles in the New Testament, what they do with the law, they use it to give shape to what it means to love God and love our neighbour, but they treat it more like wisdom than they treat it like law. Uh, Let's see, uh, for example, Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever covet command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. So how do Christians relate to and apply the law given to Israel? Well, it's a two-way street. When we love other people, doing what is right by them, you discover yourself doing the same kinds of things the law of Moses says to do. And when you go look in the law of Moses, you get some idea of how to love your neighbour. Don't harm, don't steal. The law gives some detail on how to love God and love neighbour, but ultimately Jesus himself shows what loving God and neighbour means. For those who trust in Jesus, the law of Moses is more like wisdom. It's not specific rules, but it gives a shape, a picture of how to live for Jesus. Uh, So does this answer the accusation that Christians pick and choose which bits of the Bible they like? I think it can, though we have to admit, often Christians have been sloppy. We just grab a verse from the law given by Moses to Israel and say, that's it, That, that finishes the statement. Rather than saying, that's what the law of Moses says, 
and showing how Jesus fulfills everything, how he has accomplished everything. And then showing that as Christians who are not, we're not under the law, and so Jesus has accomplished the law for us. And so the law does speak about who God is and what God loves. And in that way, it gives shapes to how we live for Jesus. Um, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see this put into practice. I think it's pretty, um, it's a pretty high level thing we've done today. We're kind of speaking in kind of abstract ways. But over the next few weeks, as we get into hearing how Jesus applies the law, uh, we're going to see how he uses it so that we live for him wholeheartedly. But for now, what we're going to do is we're going to pray that we would see Christ in the whole Bible and keep living for him. Let's pray. Our Father God, we acknowledge that all scripture is breathed out by you, the law and the prophets. And because they are fulfilled in Christ, they are useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness. We thank you for your spirit who writes your law upon our hearts and enables all those who trust in Jesus to live for you. May we learn to see Christ in the law and the prophets, and by his spirit and for his glory, that we would live out the greater righteousness. Amen.